Today is a sermon that's going to be, I think we want to kind of buckle up for this one. It's a challenging one to give, and I imagine it's going to be a challenging one to hear in terms of the nature of our words and how we use them. We use a lot of words. On average, and this isn't to disparage anyone here, but on average, women speak a bit more than men. That's probably not news to you, but uh, men on average about 7,000 words a day and women about 20,000 words. Now, when you talk, at least in the context of marital relationship, 27,000 words and you span that out over a year, you're talking about 10 million words a year. It's a lot of words, a lot of words. And um, I I think you'd agree with me that, that that many words leads us into a lot of possible problems. Uh, words have, what I want you to understand is, words have significance. They, they matter to us. And, and they have significance because they have a power. They have a power to bring about a great harm or a great help. Words have great power. And many of you, and, and you know the difficulty in managing your words. Have you not said to yourself before, I wish I hadn't have said that. Or have you not thought, if I could just take that back, what I just said? I mean, many of you, all of us, have launched words that we know have landed hard on someone. And many of you have heard words that have landed hard on you. Words are very, very significant. They're very powerful. And they're difficult to manage. This is why James writes in chapter 3, he says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mean, we we can, it it is ironic. We can move and direct elephants with your feet. You can cause killer whales to do backflips. You can train them, but we can't even train ourselves to not say harmful things to people that we love. So we're going to look at words in the book of Proverbs. Now, as you know, the book of Proverbs is kind of a a different structured book. So we looked at the preamble last week, 1 to 7, and and, and we saw how in the first nine chapters, it's kind of this extended narration. And, And what Solomon is doing is he's bidding us love wisdom, pursue wisdom, seek wisdom, avoid folly, stay away from folly. And in those first nine chapters, you have longer passages of Scripture that don't seem so random. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, you see the same line, the Proverbs of Solomon. And then he goes in, it seems like scattergun approach, with one proverb followed by another proverb followed by another proverb that doesn't seem to relate. And I explained how Solomon's using kind of a teaching philosophy here. It's the ebb and flow of life. You don't, if you're walking with a child down the road, you can't have extended conversations on one point. You bounce from here to here to here to here. But then you keep repeating, and that's what you find in Proverbs. Is you hear a proverb, uh, a word, and then a chapter later, there's two or three. And then a half a chapter later, there's another two or three. And so that's what he's doing. He's trying to teach us, and the purpose of his teaching in chapters 10 all the way to the end is really about skillful living. He's teaching us how to live as God's people for God's glory, but in a fallen world. Here's how you live. This is why, we, this is why I made the comment. In, in fact, uh, 
This is why I made the comment that the Proverbs is a covenant book for covenant people. If you, t- if you pick up Proverbs and you try to say, hey, I'm going to learn some good stuff in life, you may be encouraged in some things. You can't do it. We found in chapter 1, verse 7, that you need the fear of the Lord to walk in this wisdom. And remember, I explained what the fear of the Lord was. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence for God. When you look at God and all his redemptive work in drawing us from sin to safety, you're in awe of his holiness and goodness. So the Old Testament saying, come in here, they would have looked back to the Exodus, and they would have said, look at God. He's holy, he's powerful, he's delivering us. We want to live in light of his glory and for his glory. Well, the New Testament saying, we look back at the greater Exodus, right? The deliverance of sin and shame and guilt in Christ. And so we have this affectionate awe, affectionate reverence for God, that we want to live skillfully as God's people for God's glory, being restored to God's image. And we're going to do that today through words, because, because we want to meditate on the work of God, but that skillful living, the knowledge that comes from that, is going to be mediated through our speech. This is how we live skillfully. We live skillfully through our speech. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 13, 3, and I'm going to reference a lot of Proverbs. So you don't need to write down every one. I can post all the Proverbs that I referenced uh, on the uh, website. So you don't need to scratch them all down because some of the references I'll mention, some I won't. But this one, Proverbs 13, 3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life as he opens wide his lips. Whoever opens wide his lips comes to ruin. This matters. It's really a big deal how we manage our words if we're going to live godly for God's glory. Okay, so, so let me just break down, because we're going to be kind of collecting a bunch of scriptures together, let me just give you some headers for your mind. The first one I'm going to speak about is that words matter. Words are significant. Words are important. That's the first thing. Then I'm going to explain how they are important because they're so powerful. That's the second point. Words are going to be powerful. There's going to be life and there's going to be death in the words that you bring. And then the third heading, the third point, is going to be simply how do we speak with healing in mind rather than destruction that we can often bring through our conversations. Those are the three headers. The first thing is words matter. I I hope you recognize that. Words are significant. Words have moral value for the good and for the ill. Words really matter. And it shouldn't surprise us that Proverbs is speaking about it. In fact, it speaks more about words than it does sex, money, anger, friendships, any other topic. You will not find as much discussion in Proverbs on those topics as you do on words and on speech. Now, this shouldn't shock us, right? I mean, God uses words. I mean, God creates, he convicts, he condemns, he consoles, he comforts with words. I mean, the very beginning, let there be light. God creates with words. God has chosen to reveal himself. God, who is spirit, has revealed his glory and his power and his magnificence through words. I mean, God is right now redeeming all creation through the word of his gospel. God's right now sustaining and upholding his universe by his word, according to Hebrews 1. God, in fact, is reserving all of the worlds for judgment by his word. God has even called his son 
the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So words are very, very important to God. And he shows us by giving us the capacity to speak words. I mean, we have a unique capacity. I recognize that mammals can communicate, whales and, and, and so forth can communicate, but their ability to communicate is far inferior to us. Our ability to speak distinguishes us as image bearers. That as God has given life to us through his word, we give life to each other through the word. That's what the proverb says in 15.11. He says this, or 10.11, he says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Your mouth, if you're righteous in Christ, your mouth is to be life-giving to people, not life-draining, not life-crushing, but life-giving. In fact, Francis Schaeffer wrote this about words. He's a theologian, pastor of the uh, last century. He says, what do words have to do with Christianity? Almost everything. At every stage in redemptive history, from the time before time, to God's creation, to man's fall, to Christ's redemption, to the coming consummation, God is there and he's not silent. He's always speaking. And so are we. So do you understand the significance of words? You speak many, many words. Do you realize their significance, their importance? Do you realize, have you thought about this? This may not be a, you know, this may not be a new thought to you, but let me at least enjoy reminding you that God has given you a unique privilege to be able to speak, to be able to speak in words and communicate. He's given you a privilege, and with that privilege, there is a responsibility that you would exercise it well. It's a stewardship issue. How you speak to your spouse and to your children and to your neighbor and to your fellow church members and to your employee or employer, that's a stewardship issue. And I want to remind you why they matter so much. Because they're going to actually be useful at the very end of life. Listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew 12. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Significant. Really important. Have you considered that? I mean, when was the last time you considered the significance of your words? Have you ever thought about, why do I say what I say? Do you ever review the words that you say the day before? Do you ever think through, why did I say that? Was I angry? Was I, was I upset? Was I embarrassed? Do you consider why you say what you say? So, so the first thing is words matter. I know that's a simple point, but I want to remind you of that that words really matter. And the reason they matter is because of their life-giving or life-taking potential. Words will harm or they'll help. They're going to hurt you or they're going to heal you. In fact, Proverbs says it this way in 18.11. He says, uh, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, this is known not just to Christians, but even to secularists. I remember coming across an article uh, regarding uh, Richard Gere and Cindy Crawford, two famous actors, right? And I guess their marriage at the time, this is back in the mid-90s, their marriage was beginning to get on the rocks and it was going public. And they took out a $30,000 ad in the Times of London. And here's what they posted in this ad that they paid for. They said this. They said, thoughts and words are very powerful, so please be responsible thoughtful and kind. That's just coming from two, I don't know where they are in the faith, 
but, but let's just assume they're not even of the faith. The point of it is they know the power of words. Do we know the power of words? Do we know their capacity to harm and to heal? I mean, our words can bring great damage upon people and upon ourselves, frankly. Listen to what, the, listen to what Solomon says in sixteen twenty seven. He says, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. So I said to you, words matter. Words are significant. The reason they are is because they have power. They have power to destroy. So let me give you some examples of how we walk in conversation that can be quite destructive for people. Just see what may sit on you and on your soul. And let me begin with the more obvious ones, lying. So when we lie to one another, we give false information or partial information. And we generally do it for self-protection or self-promotion. We do it perhaps out of the fear of man. But what happens is it begins to erode the community. We are not telling the truth. Explicitly we're saying, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. If I trusted you, I could tell you the truth, but I don't trust you. So it begins to just eliminate any sort of safety and trust in a community if we can't speak truth with one another. Now the problem is that we lie. We do. We lie. All men are liars. There was a survey, or actually a study done in the University of Massachusetts by Robert Feltman. It was published in the Journal of Applied Psychology. And they took two strangers and they put them in a room and asked them to have a conversation for 10 minutes. And they filmed the conversation. After the conversation, they came out, they were interviewed separately, and they were asked about the content of the conversation. Did they speak the whole truth? And all people affirmed, yeah, I, yeah, everything we said was true. And then they went back and they reviewed the tapes of their conversation. Over 60% of them lied at least once. This is just a stranger over silly conversation. So nothing's on the line here. 60% lied at least once. On average, people were lying three times. In studies done among kids, kids six years of age will often spin falsehoods every 90 minutes. I know it's a shock that our kids lie. Really? They spin falsehoods? We lie. Solomon speaks to this. He says, a lying tongue hates its victims. It, it, it hates it because if I'm lying to you, then I'm not trusting you, I'm not loving you. So, so lying is one. Slander is another. Now slander, by the way, we think of it as kind of me, me putting forth false information about somebody with the intentionality to hurt. That is slander. But, but slander is also when I'm unintentionally just passing along a juicy story about somebody that I didn't verify whether it was true or not, but I'm passing along. Either way, it begins to erode the community. It begins to harm the body. It begins to, it begins to scorch like fire. But, but let me, that's lying and, and slander. There is criticalness, too. We can be so picayune on the lives of other people that we just pick them apart as if we're kind of dissecting a frog. Or, or, or even filthy language and, and jokes. You know where that meter is. I'm not going to say what joke is funny or what joke is too sexual or what innuendo isn't appropriate. You just know there's a meter in your mind, and you know when you kind of pass it, and you're like, eh, now I'm moving into an uncomfortable area. Those are the obvious ones. Let me speak to some of the less obvious harmful speech that scorch like fire. One would be reckless words. Reckless words. When you speak before you think, you're not weighing your words. Not, you're not considering them. We can do this in conversation all the time. When we want to give advice before they're finishing talking. Uh, when we bulldoze people 
or when we just react from the gut, we just come from the gut and say what we think. And then we pat ourselves on the back thinking, well, I'm just telling it the way it is. Really? It's like, it, it, this, this, is the, this is the beauty, and I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, of Twitter. You know, when you see something and you've got to tweet on it right away, all of a sudden it's like, mm, once it's out there, it's out there. You know, how many times have, have you heard about these tweets being deleted? I didn't think about it. It's a rash word. Solomon says this about our rash words. He says, there is one whose rash words are like a sword thrust. It's an interesting metaphor. You know, a reckless words, I would have said, it's like a slap on the face. It's a slap on the face. But, but Solomon says it's worse than that. Slap on the face you can handle. A sword thrust is altogether different. He's showing us the power of a reckless word. It can kill you. You, you, you imagine this swordsman who isn't trained. He's got a new sword. It's razor sharp, and he pulls it out, and he begins just swinging it about casually. And there's people around him. I mean, he'd be bringing great harm. Reckless words can be very destructive to people. And not just reckless words, false flattery. You know, false flattery is, is one author said it this way. False flattery, flattery means saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. You know, this idea of just promoting a person for your own selfish gain, that they might like me or they might do something for me or it gets me out of a situation or I'm about to crush them with what I'm about to say, but let me soften it first by giving them some false flattery. It undermines, in fact, Proverbs says you're spreading a net for them. You're setting them up for a big failure. False flattery or even empty talk. Empty talk, you know, Proverbs says, about empty talk, he says, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. In other words, you know how we keep conversations going? We're not really adding anything. We're just empty talk. We're not connected with our words. I wonder if we do that in worship sometimes. You know, when we're singing, and we're not even thinking about what we're singing about. Are those empty words? I think they probably are. But, but it works against the health of the church. Or, or the last one, of course, is gossip. You know, gossip is condemned in Scripture. Um, Solomon says this about gossip. He says, a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. What I mean by gossip is, you know, gossip can be truth. It's just harmful truth about a person. So it's when I tell a person about another person that isn't there. Again, the same author defines gossip, saying gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face. You know, gossip. The difference between gossip and good news is when you lower your voice. Then you know it's gossip. And, and, that is, and, and you know, we all, we all do it. We're all subject to it. I have gossiped. And people have gossiped about me. Uh, we've all done this. And, and it, it undermines the fabric of this unity that God's creating in his body. I remember one time a person came up to me, very upset, and said to me, why are you telling people not to come to the church? And I said, hey, I've been, I've been accused of a lot of things. But as a pastor, I haven't been accused of that lately. I mean, generally, I'm not in the habit of saying, hey, don't come to church. Well, when I traced it all back and got involved and tried to figure it out, a person had been coming to the church, and uh, they wanted to come to the church and greeted them. We talked to them. It was a wonderful conversation. I just said that you've been a member at this church for a number of years, and we just encourage you as a leadership team to go back and talk to the pastor that you have been faithfully attending in the church. 
and just explain to them you know, why you think it's important to leave and that sort of thing. We just think it's important to sew up things well. It, but the person took it and began to say, well, you know, Tom Merce is telling everybody not to come to the church. Well, a little different than that. Well, we've all been subject to this. But all these things begin to work against the fabric of the body. So what are the effects of harmful speech? Well, think about it. Number one, it divides friends. It does. Gossip will divide friends. A critical word will divide friends. Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and the philosopher, um, said this. He, He said, if all men knew what they said of each other, there wouldn't be four friends in the world. Can you imagine? It divides friendships. Friendships that are to display the greatness of God. It doesn't just destroy friendships, it destroys the community. Kind of make it go wider with it. Not just destroying friends, two or three friends, but it destroys the community. The redemptive work God is doing through this church is thwarted by our critical and harmful speech. It begins to sow suspicion among us. It begins to to work against the fabric of the church. Many of you, perhaps, who are a little bit older know the name Kim Philby. He was one of the, probably the greatest spies of the KJB. And uh, for 30 years, he worked taking national secrets, particularly British national secrets, and transferring them to the KJB. This is the former Soviet Union. He was known as the Napoleon of Deception. And, and, and here's what the, the Times wrote about him. It says, beyond information, their greatest service to Moscow was to spread the poison of suspicion, setting ally against ally. I mean, that is a form of destruction, getting allies to be suspicious of one another. That's what happens when we use harmful speech and gossip and slander and critical speech about one another. But, but it even goes more, it destroys reputations of people. It destroys reputations. You know, one word or one story. Did you hear Mike said this? And the the next response is, did he really? You know, and and all of a sudden, our love and respect for Mike just drops a little bit. It just just drops a notch. I don't love and respect him. There's there's now the introduction into my mind, a thought that maybe I can't trust him. And it begins to, again, sow that dissension among people. There was a Discovery Channel show on the demolition of buildings. And it was interesting. You know, I love it when you hear the pop, 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 and this building comes down in like 10 seconds, a massive building. Or like I saw the, the former Vikings football stadium just boop, 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 and the whole thing's down. Well, it takes years to build these things. But with a few charges in about 10 seconds, you can bring years worth of work down pretty easily. That's what we do with reputations when we, when we speak harmfully and critically of people. And then last, and even if you're just a person who's centered on your own self-preservation, it will ruin you. It will ruin your worship. It diminishes your worship. This is, again, James in chapter 3, he says, he says this to warn us. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? He says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How can the same mouth curse and bless? Do you realize that when we walk with unrestrained tongues, 
speaking in destructive manner, your worship here will be diminished. Your enjoyment of God, your appreciation of the gospel, your satisfaction in all that God has done for you in Christ, it will be tainted. It will be, it will be thinned out. So it's, it's a serious harm. You know, words matter because they have power, and the power can do great harm to one another. Now, thankfully, when you read through Proverbs, they can do great healing, too, and they can, do great, they can give great help, and they can give amazing hope. And this is what I want to turn to. So I want to turn the boat here, and how can our words provide Excuse me, I'm not going to go there. The, the healing nature of words. So words matter. Words have power to harm, but also to heal. Let me give you some characteristics of healing words, of healing words, words that will heal people. One, of course, is honesty. You know this. To be honest, Paul says it clearly. He says, put off falsehood. He says, walk in truth, for we're all members of Christ's body. In other words, the body is going to be helped by truth. Truth, in other words, truth is speaking reality to people. Now, there's a lot of thorns with that. When do you say it? How do you say it? And all that. Plenty of room for discussion there. But we don't want to walk in falsehood. We want to walk in truth. Uh, but, but, but another thing about the characteristic of a healing word is that it may be limited. It's, it's, it may be brief. You know, there is much danger in many words. If you tend to be verbose and you just talk and talk and talk, let me just warn you that the, the average you know, the law of averages is going to work against you. In fact, Proverbs says it. He says, um, uh, when words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. There is wisdom in speaking in briefer measure with people. You know, the fool lets his mouth run. And in that is great trouble. In fact, I would even say to you, limited, sometimes it's, it's appropriate to practice silence, just not to say anything. You know, sometimes you just need to listen. And, and these are lessons, by the way, that I've learned from some of you uh, who have encouraged me in that. And, and one, one man said, uh, well, Proverbs in 1728, he said, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. One author uh, commented on this and said, better to remain silent and thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. So th th there, is, there, is, there is room for silence. There's room for just not saying anything. So limited words, sometimes even silence is appropriate. Another type of healing word would be a tempered word. A tempered word. In other words, th that you're not going to respond to the heat of a conversation with the same heat. You're going to introduce grace. You're going to speak with gentle words. And Proverbs says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. In fact, here's what one, one verse is, a gentle tongue can break a bone. Now, in our marriage, Carol, uh, I've been thankful to God for his grace in her ability uh, to have a gentle tongue. I've lost, I have broken bones uh, from them. So we're in a conversation, we're in a spat, right? And I will take and lob a missile at her. Uh, sometimes I think because I'm frustrated, I'm angry, maybe I'm embarrassed, maybe I don't sense a degree of respect, maybe I'm just, I'm just being stupid. And so I'll say something uh, in a fairly mean-spirited way. Now, she could return the volley, and great, now we got a full-on fight. 
And she'll often just turn her head a little bit to the side and look at me. Or she'll say, did you intend to hurt me? Well, that's when snap, snap, you hear bones start going. There's no, there's no return. I'm just left in a sea of my own making. And, and I, I said, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I did try to hurt you. I'm sorry. It's amazing. And I, I really do. And I mean that. There have been a lot of fights avoided because of her gentleness, not because of my godliness. So, so a gentle tongue can break a bone. It ends the argument. It brings a calmness. It tempers a situation down. And, and our, another characteristic of a healing word is, is it's got to be timed. This takes real nuance here, and, and I am classic at, at not doing this right, but a right answer at a wrong time can be destructive. And we know that. The timing of things, the thinking through things. It's like we used to explain to our kids the importance of speaking rightly. You know, and you've seen this before. You get the kid, you get him to squeeze the toothpaste. See how easy it is to get toothpaste out? Now try to get it back in. Well, it's not so easy. Well, once you fire something out of your mouth, it's not so easy to take it back and to undo the damage that you've done. And, and the timing of words is significant. Uh, Solomon says, an apt word is like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. It, it, that takes wisdom, it takes prayer, it takes nuance. But, but these types of healing words, honesty and tempered and limited and time, it's for us, the church. This is a word for us as a church, not just in your marriage, yes, absolutely, in your relationships at work, no doubt about it. But this is a church that we are to see our words. God has given life through words, we are to give life to each other through words. And the way we do this is we think about the characteristics of the healing word, and we begin to exercise our words with a desire to instruct, teach. In other words, the way we bring healing and health to the body is that we use our words in a way to teach people, to explain the mysteries of the faith. This is just one way we'll do it. In fact, Solomon writes, he says, uh, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So how do we use our words in a healing way? Well, let's be instructive about the faith. Let's speak about the things of God. Let's teach one another about the gospel. Today, I stopped singing just to hear you sing to me because you were speaking truth to me that I needed to hear. And so I just listened sometimes. And you are all preaching right to my ears these things that you're singing. So, so that's a right way to use words, to teach, but also to reprove. There is a place for reproof. Now, people, we do not do well with this. But this is part of the healing of a church, is that we have the capacity to reprove one another. Now, <clears throat> let me be clear. If I don't like a certain tick that you have, and I'm going to reprove you because it just it annoys me, that's not what I'm speaking about here. <clears throat> that's my issue. But, but if I see that you're doing something and it's ultimately harmful for your walk of faith with God, then I am called to reprove you. As you are called and have done, reprove me. To reprove is to help set them on a path that, that brings greater glory for God and greater joy for them. <clears throat> 
To not reprove a person is to not love them. And to not think that you need reproof is to overestimate who you think you are. We all need reproof. Solomon says this, he says, better is open rebuke than a hidden love. In other words, if you think you love a person by not pointing out something that is harmful to them, that's not love. Better have an open rebuke. Blast it from the rooftops if you have to, he's saying. Do you have somebody in your life that you allow, that you even invite constructive, godly words? Have you thought about even you ringing up and calling your elder and just saying, do you see anything in me that I will shrink back on the day of judgment for? Do you see anything in me that, 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 that would lead me, if I started doing this, I would enjoy God in greater measure? Or, or anybody else, do you have anybody that has reproved you in the last 30, 60, 90 days? I, I encourage you to think about that. Who among the brethren here could you ask? People have come up to me and asked me that. What do you see in me? It gives me a great chance actually to encourage them a lot of the times. And, and then another way to use our, our, our healing words in a way instructive for the body is just encouragement. <clears throat> Just to give words of grace to people. What I mean by this is, uh, is to speak to how you see God's grace in their life. We preach this a lot here. So we did this early on, Carol and I, when our kids were young. And we wanted to teach them how to do it. <clears throat> so we said, okay, you know, and I've shared this before, but this is kind of a nuance to it. But we would say, okay, it's so-and-so's birthday, so what have you seen in, in God's, or what have you seen of God's grace in their life? Why don't you just give word to it? So one of the responses would be, well, I like your shirt. No, that doesn't really do it. Uh, how about your mother? <clears throat> when, what, what grace have you seen in your mother's life? Well, thanks for feeding me. Well, that's great that she feeds us and everything, but that's not what I'm going for. So it takes time to figure this stuff out. It's not easy. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that when we see a person going through a trial and they're faithful in the trial, do we ever come up to him and say, you know what, your faithfulness has been on display for me, and I've appreciated you. I know you don't do it perfectly, but you've really been attempting to walk by faith, and I appreciate that. That helps me. Or if you see a person really have success, and they maintain a godliness in their great success, and you say, you've really kept your feet planted on the ground. That has really helped me. Thank you for that. Or when you see a person in ministry, and they're striving, And you say, thank you for exercising your gift of service. It's very much unseen. It's probably unappreciated by many, but I saw it, and I'm encouraged to serve in greater measure. That's what I mean by pointing out the grace. I mean, you shouldn't come into this place and leave this place without finding God's grace evident in the life of someone that you can give word to. Do you realize it's it's an act of worship is what it is? It's really saying, God, thank you for displaying your mercy in their life that has encouraged me. So so think about that. Ask yourself the question, does my mouth furnish food of truth to people? Or do I bring criticism? Am I offering words of of hope and encouragement in times of conflict? Or am I adding, uh, you know, fuel to the fire, so to speak? You know, am I words, are they building people up in the faith? You know, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, He says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good and building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Are you giving grace to those who hear? 
Or are you filling their minds with thoughts of other people that will be harmful and destructive? Are you defending yourself right now from this sermon? Are you right now explaining why you've done what you just did last week? Are you finding reasons why you have to criticize so-and-so and so-and-so? Or you had to share the story for point of prayer? If you're defending yourself, then I would ask you just to repent of that. So, so words matter, and words matter because they have power. But now let me turn to the third heading, if you will. And how do we move from harmful to healing words? How do we move in the direction of godliness? How do we move in a way that this place won't be a church that engenders suffering, but would engender healing and strength? Because we're all guilty here. I mean, and don't look at me as if I've got a handle on this thing. I'm growing through this just like you were all are together in this. Okay, the first thing I would do, and I put it in an acronym. I don't do it. I think acronyms sometimes are kind of corny, uh, but this one kind of works and it helps keep it in my mind. Uh, but I think of the acronym or the word CROSS, C-R-O-S-S. So I'm just going to give you five things. Why five things and not ten? I don't know. That's five or plenty, I think. But CROSS. So here's how we're going to move from hurting people with our words to healing. Um, C, for cross would be consider your heart. I, I want you to consider your heart for a minute. Now, why do I say that? Well, in Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon writes this. He says, above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. I want you to recognize that it's not what you say <clears throat> that is the problem. It is the heart from which the words flow. And Jesus said this clearly in Luke chapter 6. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is really ground zero. Philip Brooks, a, a, a Puritan of many years ago, said that you can know coins by their tinkling. You, you know, where a, a quarter would hit a dime. You, know, you, can hear, you can know the coins by their tinkling, the weight of the metal. You can discern what coin is. He says, you can know men by their talking. You can know what's inside by their talking. And so this is ground zero. When you look at what you say, <clears throat> it should remind you of the pollution of our soul, the struggle we have with sin. It should remind us of our great need to be redeemed. It, it should remind us of our massive need for the gospel. When you think about the things you say, the struggles with gossip and false flattery and lying and, and, and slander <clears throat> and, uh, and, and false speech criticalism, what does that make you, what do you do with that? It, it should cause you to recognize that the issue is not them, but it's right here. It should cause you to stop. Now, this is really where we're going to see whether you're a Christian or not. This is a beautiful thing about the word. The word is like a mirror to us, and it reveals who we are. See, I always find that when we get to this point in a sermon and we ask people to consider their heart, we move from actions to attitudes, or we move from behavior to belief. <clears throat> the non-Christian will generally move first with excuse. Well, you don't know what they said to me first. Or they move with defensiveness. Or, or they move with self-justification. The non-Christian rarely is able to say, you're right, you're right. I mean, wouldn't we love it in the political world for someone to say, I'm wrong, I got it wrong, I did it wrong? Wouldn't we just drop, I'd vote for him every time. I, it'd be unbelievable. 
the, the, the non-Christian, I'm not calling not politicians non-Christians here, I'm not saying that. Um, the uh, the non-Christian will defend. The Christian is evidenced quickly by the conviction that comes upon his soul, and he says, you're right, you're right. The problem is not simply out there, it's in here. I need God's grace if I'm ever going to grow in this. I need help. That's what the Christian says. You know, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We know that those who will have the kingdom of heaven, they are poverty of spirit. Tax collectors and sinners are getting into the kingdom ahead of the religious. Why? They know they're broken. C.S. Lewis always says, says, you don't need to tell the prostitute their life is a mess. They already know it. It's the religious that we have to move toward the position of understanding. I need Christ. I need to be redeemed. So the first thing is consider your heart. What do you find in your heart right now? Why do you say the things you do when you act with criticalness? Why is it? Is it because you're intimidated by them? You envy them? Are you in fear? Are you defensive? Why? Can you repent? Can we just stop and repent? God, would you forgive me and cleanse my heart? That's that's considered. Okay, next one is rejoice in the gospel. This is important for Christians, to rejoice in the gospel. What do I mean? Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of our speech. He came to die for the sins of our mouth. He came to die for my slander, for my gossip, for my lying. He came to die for those things. The beauty of the gospel is that when we look at Christ, there was no deceit found in his mouth. His words were gracious. They were true. He didn't slander. He didn't gossip. He didn't lie. He didn't offer false flattery. But I'm not, I'm not holding Jesus up as some example. You've got to try harder after him. I'm holding him up as a savior. He did it perfectly. That's why Proverbs is a good, it's a book of good news. Why? Because it shows us our sin. It shows us our brokenness. We can't do it, God. We can't live for you. But here's one who can. And he did it perfectly. And he becomes the one who was perfect in speech and he's perfect as a substitute for our sins. And so now we can rest in him and we can trust in him. And in faith, believing the gospel is believing that we have one who has done all this work for us. Now, it doesn't say, great, I can sit back now. That's not it. He gives us his spirit through faith. And the spirit moves in us now. And the spirit kind of illumines, if you will, the truth of the gospel in our minds. Then our hearts are drawn with affection. That's the fear of God again. The affectionate reverence for all that Jesus has done. And then what's expressed out of our lives is a growing desire to speak for the glory of God. So so that's how the the Spirit takes the work of Christ, applies it to our minds, it fills our heart, and then boom. It begins to work out of our lives. So we want to rejoice in the gospel. Don't leave here as a Christian. As a non-Christian here, I would ask you to just take this week and try to not sin with your mouth. And tell me you don't need a Savior to come deliver you. Tell me that if every careless word ever spoken will be held up on the day of judgment, tell me you don't need a Savior. But for the Christian here, rejoice with me. Let's not walk out of here just browbeating over this thing. Let's rejoice in the gospel that our minds will be filled with what he's done, our hearts will be stimulated, and then boom, it will begin to express itself through our speech. Okay, thirdly, the O is open your Bibles. Read your Bibles, deepen your knowledge of doctrine, of God. If you marinate your mind in the word of God, 
you're going to speak with his words. God has designed his scriptures to not just give you new life through being born again, but to sustain your new life. So that's why Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because as his language dwells in you, it's going to come out of you. See, the word is a hammer. The word is a mirror. It's exposing things. It's crushing things. And as you read it and study it and love it, his language is going to be the way you speak. I remember when we were in, <clears throat> in Michigan, uh, they had a certain style of speaking in central Michigan that I hope you, if anybody's from Michigan, I'll just repent right up front. I'll just say that. I'm sorry. But the, it spoke in a way that I was thinking I was doing a lot of correction. And, and I remember talking to my aunt. Uh, it, was a, it was a very small school, and, and uh, it was a, a school that struggled to do the best that they could. But I talked to my aunt, and I said, yeah, the kids are coming home with all this phraseology, and, and she was an English teacher. She goes, listen, they're going to talk the way you talk. They're going to hear you most, and they'll talk the way you talk, which all of a sudden reminded me, well, let's not just worry about the kids' speech. Let's worry about my own. But it's the same thing. You're following Christ. His word's dwelling in you. You're going to talk the way he talks. Okay, the two S's. One is, is seek a wise person. The proverb says, walk with a wise man, and you become wise. Companion of fools, you're going to bring great harm. Find a person who you find is wise. Seek them. Listen to them. Listen to the way they speak. Listen how they interact with people. I mean, pick up, mimic, imitate. That's the way we learn. Learn from the wise person. If there's somebody that has instructed you with wisdom, then ask them about it. Speak to them about it. Ask their opinions on things. So seek to walk with the wise, and you'll be wise. And then the last S would be to uh, solicit help. <laughs> I love these acronyms. Solicit help. Ask for prayer. I ask prayer. Carol always pray every Saturday night, and she prays increasingly desperately as I start losing things. But she said, God, guard his tongue. Guard his tongue. May I not bring shame to the cross of Christ by the way I speak or the way I bring cutesy humor humor and the way i bring cutesy humor out but but pray ask for help ask people to pray for you you know wouldn't it not be amazing that if on the prayer chain we have a prayer chain and all the members hear about the prayers and 98 percent of them are here you know people are sick or they have and that's fine that's an appropriate thing to do would it not blow us away if all of a sudden we've got a prayer chain i can't control my gossip i i, I really am just speaking in a filthy manner or, yeah, I just, I'm so scared of people, I keep issuing false flattery so that they'll like me. What would you do to that? And by the way, all of us could probably post a prayer request along that line. But ask for help. God, help me here. So words matter. Words matter, and words matter because they have power. They have power to harm, but they have power to heal. And so think about the cross. Get engaged today. Think about Consider your heart. Rejoice in the gospel. Make a plan. Even if it's reading a paragraph a day, I want his words to fill my soul. And then walk with someone that's smarter than you. And solicit prayer from your spouse or from a friend. If you struggle with your words, ask for help. So let's do that right now. Let's turn to God. We're going to pray. I would ask you to pray briefly so others could pray. I will ask you to pray loudly so we can hear you and say, yes, amen, God, may that be done 
for them in their glory. You can leave your Bibles open as it's prompting you to pray. And then an elder is going to close us in just a minute. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a hammer and that it has crushed us. But you're crushing that which is wrong in order to create room to build that which is good and right. And we will thank you for it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.